Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, hey, Sam, how are you? I'm good. So I've been uh, upping my um, cinephilia. Uh, my sort of cinephile reputation. Yeah. Uh, I watched a movie recently by the Finnish director Aki Kurismäki. Whoa. Have you seen any Kurismäki films, though? No, I am a total Kurismäki ignoramus. Well, I'm a lot smarter than you, and I've seen a lot more films. Clearly, uh, someone on my course mentioned um, Kurismäki, and I was like, I'm just gonna watch. I'm just gonna watch this film. Is in the modern world, everything's at your fingertips. Absolutely. So I decided to when... download it and watch it. It's called uh, Shadows in Paradise. It's a 1986 film, um, and I recommend it. I found it adorable. It's like a kind of um, a romantic drama, sort of romantic comedy um, with very managed performances, a little bit like um, Killing of a Sacred Deer, which we'll talk about later, but with like uh, completely the opposite sort of atmosphere. Um, and it kind of reminded me of Wes Anderson, actually, and these people who uh, talk in a slightly stilted and direct, you know, very like formal way, um, and... I was slightly bemused by it at the start because I was like, who are these weird people? Why are they acting like that? But then you kind of settle into it um, and it turned out to be a rather um, sweet tale. It's about a garbage truck driver who uh, meets a woman who works in a supermarket. You know, they're both like very poor, impoverished working class people in 80s Finland um, and they sort of form a like awkward people connection. And I just, I what? was gradually won me over. I found it quite enchanting. And oh I, my God. And I recommend it. Well, next week, I'm going to watch some shit you've never even heard of. Please do. And then we'll see who knows about European auteurs. Huh? How yeah. many Bergman have you watched? All right, that's fine. I've enough. watched none. I, they showed Persona in my university, and I slept through all of it. Did you? <laughs> the whole thing? Yeah. I woke up, there was someone in a room. And at the beginning, for as far as I knew, I'd like missed two minutes, but I'd missed the entire film. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think something happens in it, like uh, little faces, black and white. Well, that sounds good. I'm going to have to check that one out. Um, you've really sold it. I think something happens in it, lots, a lot of faces. Faces in it, black and white. What Boy, oh boy. I'm going to download that one. But yeah, I was quite um, pleased at like a film that initially presented itself as this rather forbearing art house watch. Oh, you, which well, you're like, going to eat your vegetables. Well, but... it looked like grim as hell, you know, like it all starts with like garbage trucks and stuff and they're all acting weird. And I was like, oh, you know, mm, I could be watching Spikers right now. Yeah, exactly. But I actually found it very engrossing and enjoyable. Cool. Um, and it's a, uh, yeah, it's like a sort of working class film that is not like a kitchen sink drama, if you know what I mean. Cool. Uh, in, a, in a way that I recommend. I also kind of felt like this is a very niche comment, <laughs> but the, the ending of the movie Sing Street is nicked from the ending of the film Shadows in Paradise, Fuckers. in my opinion. Fucking, they didn't think anyone would notice, but I did. All right, so I'm watching you, whoever made that film. Don't remember your name. 
Well, uh, the Wes Anderson comparison makes me think there's a lot of like American directors that just rely on the ignorance of the masses. They haven't seen these Does, like yeah yeah these uh, European films where they they stole their whole manner from. Yeah, yeah, we're on to you. All right, I'm watching you, Wes. Um, shall I describe the? Yes, if you could. I sorry, I didn't prompt you to do that, but if you could just launch into a prepared, uh, scripted introduction to the podcast, that'd be great. Just so happens I have one right here. (laughs) When Sam Foster visits his boyfriend Billy in New York, he finds him in bed with another man. Sam breaks up with Billy immediately and then goes to stay with his close friend and struggling actress, Katie Rogers. Katie convinces Sam to start an independent life of his own instead of sitting around and doing nothing. One day. When Katie has to go to an audition, Sam takes over her job as a messenger and eventually has to deliver a shipment to a large building construction company. Meanwhile, the deputy director of that company, Danny Moran, plans to usurp the director, Richard, by sabotaging his work and making him seem incompetent. To help him do this, he makes sure that Richard's secretary gets dismissed and that Sam gets employed in her place. Sam proves himself to be quite an adept assistant, though. So much. Sh- <laughs> this is gripping. <laughs> this podcast really is. It's got a great setup. <laughs> so much so that Richard shares an important confidential project with him. However, Danny tricks the confidential information out of the naive Sam and uses it to get the board of directors to fire Richard. I won't go into specifics about what that was. Okay. Just to know, but you got him fired indirectly. But young Sam devises a ruse to outsmart Danny. When Danny has to give a presentation to some important investors, Sam sends him to the wrong <laughs> meeting room where he's organized Katie and some of her acting chums to pose as the investors. Meanwhile, Sam presents his own presentation to the real investors who buy it in the room. When Danny discovers this deception, he goes ballistic and he's fired by the board of directors for breaching workplace behavior standards. Is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the classic film Blonde Ambition, starring greatest actress of her generation, Jessica Simpson. This, in fact, is a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me is a man who, despite having lovely long blonde hair, isn't uh, really dumb. I think that's the message of the film, Sam Foster. Hey, I hope you're listening to everything Danny just said, listener, because there's going to be a test on that at the end. The plot of Blonde Ambition. Don't cheat. Don't go on Wikipedia. You just better have been listening to it. So uh, this week, we're going to be reviewing a trio of quite spooky films, uh, making this the most terrifying sort of Halloween special. A belated one. Ooh. Um, first, we'll be raising a glass of nice Chianti and giving a hearty... <laughs> to The Silence of the Lambs, which has returned to cinemas in digitally restored form. Jonathan Demme's Oscar-winning horror is generally acknowledged as a classic, but has anyone ever said things about it like, it's quite good, and I liked Jodie Foster's accent? I hope not, because that's really all I have to say uh, about that movie. We'll also be reviewing The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which sees Colin Farrell reuniting with the director of The Lobster for another misanthropic drama, which is as offbeat as it is harrowing. And Thelma, a Norwegian telekinetic lesbian horror, which Guardian film critic Peter Bradshaw has described as scary, sexy, and cool. That's our thing. I can't believe you've stolen our thing, movie. Plus, we'll be discussing whether the onerous demands Disney is making on cinemas wishing to screen the next Star Wars film make Disney the real evil empire. A stupid question, to which the answer is obviously yes. And we'll be touching on Dustin Hoffman's use of a truly bizarre, borderline Cronenbergian line to sexually harass someone. All that should leave just enough time for me to launch the latest film chat GoFundMe campaign, which will be raising money for us to go to LA and try to get an ambush interview with Robert Pattinson in an effort to please the RPATS fan accounts on Twitter. 
We've already gotten up to 10 likes and retweets from some very influential fan accounts, just with a couple of carefully chosen hashtags. Imagine what we could do with a 30-second interview about his exercise regime, or what sort of dreams he has. Please give generously. Gotta track down our pets. Weinstein um, sexual assault story continues to rumble on and its tendrils spread ever outwards into every facet and corner of society. Um, don't want to dwell on it too much, you know, because it just like this uh, podcast will become unlistenably grim. But there was one um, sort of colorful accusation against quite a prominent actor, Dustin Hoffman, the Hoff, as people don't call him because that's um, David Hasselhoff. David Hasselhoff. Um, he has been accused of sexual harassment by a uh, writer, Anna Graham Hunter, who said that he groped her and engaged in sexually inappropriate behavior on the set of the 1985 TV movie Death of a Salesman. She wrote an article in The Hollywood Reporter about this, where she said, he asked me to give him a foot massage my first day on set, and I did. He was openly flirtatious. He grabbed my ass. He talked about sex to me in front of me. One morning, I went to his dressing room to take his breakfast order. He looked at me and grinned, taking his time. Then he said, I'll have a hard-boiled egg and a soft-boiled clitoris. His entourage burst out la- His entourage. <laughs> his- what? Turtle? <laughs> <laughs> um, Eric E. Yeah. Uh, and the other one, Johnny Drama. Johnny, <laughs> Johnny Drama and the rest of the entourage, uh, they all burst out laughing. I left speechless and I went to the bathroom and cried. And, I mean, I know that's a horrible story. But it was just so weird. It's so weird. It was just hard not clitoris. to be. I don't know. I don't want bacon's like a ass like a ten year old boy, and I want <laughs> hash browns, and I want to smoke hash out of your ass, <laughs> and I want like well, like it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it a does sound like clitoris. A, it sounds like he was trying to be, funny. be creepy and funny. You surrounded know. by yes men. Surrounded by yes men. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So anything, anything. Great says, joke. Great crack, Dustin. I love it. Oh, what a weirdo. Yeah. Um, Hoffman has responded to the article with an apology. He says, "I have the utmost respect for women and feel terrible that anything I might have done could have put her in an uncomfortable situation. I'm sorry. It is not reflective of who I am. But it's reflective of who he is. Come on. I was in Tootsie. I dress up as a. I know what a wo- being a woman's like. That's what the whole movie's about. It's How really could, bad. It's I've, very dated. I'm astonished film. that the star of Tootsie would have a history of um, sexually inappropriate behavior. Yeah. Like, having made the wokest film in history, Tootsie. Do you think Pretty every, important. like, Dustin Hoffman's just the first of the 70s actors to, you know, if, if I'm just judging this by the book, like, Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, where it's this oh, sort of backlane existence where, like, everyone, yeah. or, like, these rock stars, New Hollywood, it's like, I'd be surprised if Jack Nicholson hasn't done some horrible shit. Oh, absolutely. Or, like, you know, yeah. any of those actors, any of the cast of The Godfather, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, it's like I'm glad you brought up that book actually because I hadn't thought I've read that book and I hadn't thought about it in ages but it is basically like a gossip tome uh, it's this it's this book by Peter Biskent right? yeah. and it's this kind of chronicle of the crazy Hollywood in the 70s after the studio system was kind of flailing around because they there was this like counterculture cinematic movement that um, started going and they were like funding all these wild projects and all these like offbeat character actors and directors were um, you know, making these major films 
Uh, so it's creatively a very exciting time, but they're all you know these kind of firecracker guys, and there's all these sorts of stories about like Dennis Hopper like threatening people with a shotgun or whatever. And the way it's presented in the film is just as this uh, recollection of this wild, you know, hedonistic era. What but, a crazy time! Yeah, yeah. But then uh, in the you just now thinking about it, you think that must have just been an absolute like horrif- horrifying atmosphere of probably continual sexual harassment and like. You know, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, there, there, there must be like a cesspit of like criminal behavior going on there. I mean, I'd be astonished if it wasn't. And I don't know if you could write, you know, if you could write it now without thinking about that. It's just some kind of gonzo, like the tale of excess. You know, the, your, your mind is immediately, you know, assumes that like awful shit was happening. Absolutely. Someone needs to go back to Peter Biskind and get him to, you know, reveal all the notes that he didn't put in because they were too criminally libelous. He's probably got, like, a black book of uh, uh, sexual assault allegations. I have a question. Katie has yes. a question. The, uh, the one audience member has put her hand up. <laughs> Robert Kate. De Niro and Al Pacino have... There's been nothing on them so far. Do you think they're... It's, we're, it's, we're waiting in the wings? Oh. Well, this is what... This is the question. Yeah, I don't know. That's a, I mean... The biggies. The biggies. Well, do you think Spielberg's got any dirt on him? Do you think like society will crumble if Spielberg turns out to be like? <laughs> but he did a little bit. Like, a little bit, really. Well, Spiel dirt. Spiel dirt. Well, he, you know, had sexual relations and flirted with his leading lady, but it was all consensual. Who was that? What? Well, what? he married Kate um, Campshire. That's oh. not dirt. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, that's what I'm saying. But you know, the thing he was doing. Dirt. Pattern of behaviour. So he does. We know that he fucks. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the first I'm, that's the first sign I've got some work. I heard he once met and married a woman <laughs> but, it, but it was but it stayed was with her for 40 years someone he was working with you know and yeah. if he was willing to start dating and subsequently have a long term <laughs> monogamous relationship <laughs> and raise several and children with this woman several children with a woman he worked with you don't know what else he could have what else he was getting up to in that time fine you know people would have said this about um uh, uh joss wheaton until recently that's true exactly we're you living in I a mean? time of fallen idols so so, so why not spielberg uh, his well, wife probably will like write some kind of blistering article about him well we'll have an empire magazine of spielberg's like sexual harassment well they're probably they're probably in up to their next you know chris hewitt <laughs> nick december helen o'hara helen o'hara they're probably all been they've all been doing it no that's i shouldn't say that actually i don't have they're any all, reason to believe that it's deeply libelous, uh, but it's fine because this is just being, you know, publicly said and recorded. So I don't see any problems. Me no, neither. I'm not. Uh, don't worry, just cut that bit out. Just cut that bit out. No, I mean, I'm sure none, none of the staff of Empire Magazine have done anything untoward. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from giving Avatar five stars, <laughs> am Apart I from right? Giving Attack of the Clones five stars. <laughs> That's the real crime. <laughs> yeah. I don't, think, sp- I, I don't think we should discuss this anymore because our discussions about it are getting increasingly less serious. Yeah. It's true, it's true. That's the problem, just it's like with the, the news, you know? Gets, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, it's first you're outraged, and that's just like the next and thing. you're just absolutely baffled and bemused by it. Let's not fall into that cycle. That's it. We'll never talk about women again and the assault charges. That's um, the way to solve I wanted to drop in a little mid-news item. Well, you can. This can be cut out, of course. What? But I just was like, because I was thinking, you know, we're going to be discussing these miserable, like, uh, horrible society-wide endemic mistreatment of women, and I wanted to find some kind of 
you know, more positive story or whatever. And I was just pleased to see that uh, Margot Robbie is getting a um, starring role in like a proper film where she's not a sex object. Yay! Uh, which a movie that I had not been following called I Tonya. About oh, like Tonya Harding, the skater, the ice skater. Right. Yeah. So she's playing her in a biopic, which is being directed by Craig Gillespie, who is the director of the rather good Lars and the Real Girl, an early Gosling film for the Gosling fans out there and anyone else. Cause it's a cute film. Um, and uh, it sounds like it's going to be a slightly unusual biopic. She has she led quite a colorful life. And it's uh, I think it's going to be a sort of a mixture of fact and fiction and stuff. Um, and there's a trailer, which I have not yet watched. Didn't probably research this, but I was just, you know, looking around and I was like, thank God, because Margot Robbie is a great actress with a huge amount of charisma, like real screen presence, has a real kind of movie star air to her, but has pretty much... Only... She's a girl next door, as that creepy article yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. I mean, uh, basically, for an encapsulation of how the entirety of Hollywood has treated Margot Robbie, you just go back and read that unbelievably horny and creepy interview God. that she was... Uh, that she did with some um, in Vanity Fair, I think it was. Yeah. Which is basically the entire, it's like, it's just drool in verbal form. Um, and yeah, really, really great. But good for her. Good for her. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The best kind of news is Star Wars news. I love Star Wars news. But this is left field Star Wars news. I love it's- left field news uh the last jedi is coming out in about six weeks and everyone stands to make a lot a lot of money from it uh and the people who stand to make the most money is of course disney who own pretty much everything they've got marvel pixar and lucasfilm under their umbrella and they know they've got the hottest tickets in town and they are not shy about using that for extreme leverage over cinemas and there was a report in the wall street journal this week about the onerous conditions that Disney are putting on cinemas. Firstly, theaters must commit to showing the movie in their biggest screening room for at least four weeks. On top of that, Disney is plucking 65% of the ticket sales. And if they find out an exhibitor broke the conditions of the agreement, they will be charged an additional 5% of the ticket sales as a penalty. These agreements will have to be uh, signed prior to tickets being made available to sell. And Uh, each cinema needs to provide Disney with a bowl of green M&Ms only. Yes, and, and your first Bonchard must first be called bonchard. Disney. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it goes on to talk about how much leverage Disney has. And Disney uh, last year had a 26 market share with only 13 releases because they've got all the temples sewn up. So it's kind of interesting because I think people are always complaining about the state of multiplex chains. And there's obviously problems about uh, the way they fired union reps in the case of Cineworld and the living wage campaign, but also just the ticket prices are getting higher and the quality of service is depleting. Yeah. But the thing is, like, maybe there's a slight sort of trickle-down notion of this because, you know, cinemas only make their money on these tentpole pitches and they have to slice the overheads on every single part of their... Yeah, I would actually be quite curious to read the business breakdown of exactly what's going on here because you'd think that cinemas' overheads would have been getting less and less. They don't need projectionists anymore. Yeah. And they they don't need to, you know... I mean, the distribution is much cheaper now because, what, are they send you a DVD now or something like that? You, get, you don't have to handle yeah, like, enormous... Yeah, you it over film. the... Uh... You just download the movies. Yeah, that's exactly how it happens. Yeah. I know that because the 
Prince Charles recently did a Lord of the Rings All Nighter and they got sent the the extended editions by mistake. Yeah, they torrented the wrong one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, so you'd think that their cost should be decreasing, um, and but maybe the uh, the the costs are just uh, the 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 benefits are just being retained by the distributors or whatever because it's been very noticeable the decline in um, cinema chain quality. But yeah, but this is like. It, it's it's interesting because you don't really hear this kind of news very often. I think someone must have leaked it because it's obviously a confidential um, agreement that's signed. You don't normally hear about this sort of thing. Obviously, someone is super outraged. This report also mentions that as of the time of it being published, that um, the box office is down 5% from last year. So maybe it's just a reflection of just, you know, people, uh, cinema, people aren't going to cinema. So you have to make your money on these huge, squeeze every penny on the Star Wars and the Marvel releases and then roll the dice on all the other releases. Yeah. But like this is this is money in the bank saying so like, you know, you will give us sixty five percent and you know, you obviously will take that deal because you'll still make money even if it's Yeah. The what are, are smaller. Apparently the regular takings of the that the, the distributor takes of the revenue from the ticket sales is like fifty percent or something like that, like fifty fifty five. So like sixty five is like much, much more. Um, and they Star Wars has been squeezing a lot out of cinemas for a while. I think that the sixty five percent is common with some previous Star Wars releases. But what's new is this kind of 5% fine if you break the agreement, like they, you know, criminalize you effectively um, if you don't do what they say. And yeah, it's very, it's slightly sinister strong arm tactics, isn't it? Don't uh, you really make all the money in the world? What the fuck do you need, you know? Yeah, well, they're competing against themselves, you know? Yeah, yeah. They, they, own, they own all the other movies. Yeah, it's just capitalism, like the, man. Yeah. It's brutal out there. That's why I watch all my films in a pop-up cinema in my in my shed. But I'm just me and whoever wants to come. Anyone can come. It's free. And it's just it's the just perfect cinema society. It's just it's just my old cafe raid tube TV. That's very hooked up to a PlayStation Two. A little break now in the show, cause Danny has to blow his nose, and Sam is trying on different clothes. And Katie's cooking sausage rolls I think they're almost done And now they're definitely done, 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 done. The Science of the Lambs is getting released this Friday um, It was released 26 years ago And then it's one of the few uh, movies to win the big five For the Oscars winning best film Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and two acting awards for Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster. And you've probably each. already seen it. No, two each, two each, yes. That's so how claim they were. Yeah. So seven, seven Oscars <laughs> for five categories. <laughs> One of the few films to do that. And if you haven't seen it, it's about Jodie Foster playing Clarice Starling, who she's a rookie FBI investigator and a uh, serial killer is kidnapping women, skinning them alive and then disposing of the bodies. And in order to get a insight into the killer, she has to go interview famed uh, serial killer Hannibal the Cannibal, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins. And it becomes this horror thriller kind of about misogyny and about this weird relationship between uh, Starling and Lecter. And here's a clip of their first iconic meeting. Good morning. Dr. Lecter, my name is Clarice Starling. May I speak with you? You're one of Jack Crawford's, aren't you? I am, yes. 
May I see your credentials? Certainly. Closer, please. Closer. That expires in one week. You're not real FBI, are you? I'm still in training at the Academy. Jack Crawford sent a trainee to me. Yes, I'm a student. I'm here to learn from you. Maybe you can decide for yourself whether or not I'm qualified enough to do that. Mm -hmm. That is rather slippery of you, Agent Starling. Hello, Sam. Hello, Clarice. Hello, Clarice. Where am I from? I'm doing the accent. I, I used to have a thick Yorkshire accent. What? It's Welsh. It's <laughs> famously Welsh. I was just trying to give a random accent as part of a comedy bit. I wasn't trying to remember Anthony Hopkins' actual accent. So this movie is brilliant. And you should all go see it in the big screen. Maybe yeah. I'll go see it in the big screen. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll take my own recommendation. I, I watched it for the first time quite recently, actually. Oh. Um, look at you catch up on the I movies. Pretty, yeah. I was feeling very ignorant for having never seen it, so I decided to watch it. And I enjoyed it a lot. I think, like... Um, I don't know. It's kind of funny that it's a massive Oscar-winning film because it basically felt to me like a really well-done genre film. You know, like it's uh, all the all the aspects of it are kind of familiar. Although I guess it's you know been very influential, so a lot of things taken off it. Uh, but I just thought it was an extremely well-done piece of um, genre thriller work, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thought Jodie Foster is really excellent in it. Anthony Hopkins is a bit cartoonish in it, but. Whatever, I guess it's kind of iconic. But, you do know, you find him cartoonish? Because when bit. I saw it, I thought it was like, I kind of got it. Like, I'd seen all the parodies, but I thought, you know, it still, his performance had a lot of weight to it. Doing like He's famously kind of in it for like 15 minutes. Yeah, 12 minutes. 12 minutes of screen time or something. Oh, really? He's just, he's just so damn chilling. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Jonathan Demme's direction is amazing. And I think that's the movie everyone cited when he passed away this year. And uh, he's such a sort of such an interesting film in his filmography because he like before that he just made these sort of wacky knockabout comedies and then it's like make a thriller and he's like I shall make the best thriller ever. <laughs> uh, but this use of like subjective camera work, all the sort of close ups of people just like delivering their lines to cameras and stuff, really I don't know, really worked on me, really did a number on me when I saw it. And it's definitely by far and away the best uh, Hannibal movie or TV thing. I haven't watched all of the Hannibal TV show. I mean, I think part of it is purely because... You can't make that judgment until you've seen every episode of that. I saw the TV first show. four and I couldn't really get on board of it, to be honest with you. Katie loves it. It's, it's schlock. Schlock. It's total schlock. Total schlock. But, it's it's yeah. total schlock. Oh, amazing sound design. Well, the Hannibal TV show is amazing sound design. But the Signs of Lambs, <laughs> I think, is the best Hannibal story. I mean... Purely because Chloe Starring is a more interesting protagonist than the other one. Um, and this kind of story about how uh, it's all about her navigating misogyny in different ways. And the the focus on strong female characters, like even the final victim has got a lot of agency. And uh, yeah, the way... Yeah, do that stuff with the dog. The and dog, everything. yeah. And uh, the screenplay, I think, is kind of genius. Like the, the beginning, she has like, it's kind of free first dates. She like, like Jack Crawford 
who's kind of like this sort of romantic father figure thing. And then there's like Chilton, who's this creepy dude. Yeah. And then like Hannibal Lecter is like the one. He's the the nice creep. The man who respects her. Yeah, respects her the most. And like, you know, he obviously sort of, his fingers giving everyone a verbal dressing down. Yeah, but he kind of like disrespected and he makes the guy kill himself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's nice. But he just, you know, he's the only one who doesn't really have any designs on her. He's like, I just want to know about you. Yeah. And this sort of weird thing. And then it comes this weird, like, uh, feel like Jonathan Demi's background in romantic comedies is sort of like present in the <laughs> film in a way because it's sort of like a date movie. Like, you know, their relationship and the way it evolves. Yeah. I, I it think... kind of gives it an edge that's kind of, you know, yeah, absolutely. I think all that stuff is very effective. And I, I did like, I think it's probably the most um, uh, well-traveled Hollywood route of doing the, you know, doing a strong female character is to basically like set her against like nasty men, like put her in a man's world and see how she, you know, copes. But this is a very well done version of that. Um, and uh, I did like the way pretty much every male character in the movie is some shade of like creepy weirdo. Like even the guys who do the um, autopsy, you know, and she's kind of hitting on her. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, hitting on her and being weird. Um, and all all of that is is really well done. I do think that the 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 plot, the way that the plot goes, particularly with um, Anthony Hopkins, but does get like you know graphic novel levels of like silly. I mean, his his sort of escape scheme is just like... Oh, spoiler! All right, well, <laughs> if you haven't seen the movie, there's a bit where he attempts... He may not succeed, I don't wish to spoil it, but he attempts yeah. to escape um, his uh, prison, and it's, like, very ridiculous. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's very entertaining, but yeah. it's just, like, I, I think that there's only so uh, powerful a psychological drama it can be when it contains, like, sequences like that. Yeah, but I feel like the ludicrousness of that sequence is like a testament to how good the movie is because you can sort of pull it off. Though. Yeah, like you know, if you think about the actual mechanics of it's it, it's just ridiculous. It's 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 so silly, and I don't yeah, know. I, I can't fully done. take seriously Anthony Hopkins like swishing about in his cell listening to classical music and whatever. I was a bit like, I don't know. I think he's a bit hammy, at, at Hopkins. To be honest with you, now, Sir Anthony Hopkins. What do you think is better, his performance in that or his performance as Odin in Thor Ragnarok? Look, listen, you think that he's iconic in Silence of the Lambs, but his introduction in Thor Ragnarok when he's reclining on a couch and eating grapes and laughing along because he's, he isn't really Odin, he's actually Loki. Playing two characters. He's playing two characters, and he is doing... I mean, that's the real, that's the real Hopkins as far as I'm concerned. Fair enough. Um, you Andy... Can't, you can't answer that. It's unanswerable. Andy Poole, uh, one of our regular contributors, thank you, Andy, for sending us stuff. What would we be without you? Just have less stuff to talk about. He, uh, in because we mentioned we were going to review this last week, he sent us a very interesting podcast called Is This Transphobic? Uh, which is a pretty self-evident podcast theme where they just review pop culture things like TV and film and ask whether it's transphobic. And that's a allegation that's been leveled at Science of Lambs from its release because the killer Buffalo Bill uh, wants to be a woman and is making a woman's suit. Um, one of the more serious elements of the plot. I don't see how you can see this film as ridiculous. Man's making a suit out of women. I mean, yeah. nothing, of course. And um, it was, yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting listen, I would recommend. But they were making this point that, like, they talk about transsexuals in the film. There's a line where Jodie Foster says transsexuals are usually passive in a way which is, like, like she's talking about them like they're a breed of dog or something. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it definitely, definitely dates it. 
Jonathan Demme, in response to the criticism at the time, said, Buffalo Bill wasn't a gay character. He was a tormented man who hated himself and wished he was a woman because that would have made him as far away from himself as he could possibly be. But he said, I got woke up. I came to realize that, in fact, there's a tremendous absence of positive gay characters in movies. And that led him to uh, make the film Philadelphia, which was the sort of landmark prestige Hollywood movie about uh, this uh, lawyer who had contracted AIDS and was uh, wrongfully dismissed by the company he was working for. Isn't there a bit of a conflation of gayness and uh, transsexuality there? It's like, I felt really bad about my transphobic character, so I made a gay film. Well, I think the the press, the negative, the people lobbying against Signs of Lambs were like gay organizations. Right. So okay. I don't know if yeah. one, if not like a sort of one for one, but just well, generally you know, you got, got more seats in the LGBT. LGBT. You got that acronym there. You know, if you offend one <laughs> letter of it, you just, uh, you know, they're a community. As, as, yeah. <laughs> as long as you make it up to one of the other letters, you'll be basically done. OK. Yeah. I mean, I was like the outcome of this uh, podcast was. Um, the general review is that it's transphobic, but like just by implication rather than being explicitly transphobic, and it's not made by people uh, who are like you know mean mean hearted. In fact, the opposite. I think Jonathan Demme is like a big humanist, and yeah. like that sort of is present in the movie. Um, but yeah, I think it is probably just a case of the way like horror films are weirdly have a long history of depicting like uh, they're quite conservative. In their views, and often like movies like Sleepaway Camp, like the killers are like trans. It's like the first trans character in the movies, like the slasher killer. Oh, really? And stuff like that. And just maybe just the lack of trans characters in mainstream films means that when a negative one comes along, it just has extra yeah resonance, well, you know, that, like because I, yeah, I think it's like um, the effort to uh, portray characters who have you know somewhat mentally disturbed or whatever. You want to have villains who have got like mental problems. And you think that one way to depict mental illness is just somebody who's like, you know, doesn't obey gender norms. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like from even like someone like Psycho. It's like, look how crazy he is. Yeah, absolutely. Always a dress. Well, like when I first saw Signs of Lambs, I thought the whole Buffalo Bill thing was just like the logical endpoint of a film about men who hate women. It's like what's worse than killing women is like literally starving them a bit, stealing their skin, skinning them alive is like, you know, I can't up in terms of weird, horrible shit to do to women. Yeah. Which maybe that's a quite a sort of blunt, simplistic reading of it. Um, but yeah, it's a kind of interesting uh, podcast. I highly recommend it. And I recommend seeing the movie. See the movie first. That way, when you listen to the podcast, you'll make it'll make sense all the stuff they're referencing. <laughs> and that's the film Perfect. chat recommendation. Perfect. Perfect. And why not enjoy it with a nice glass of uh, red wine and some and Bar some beans. lentils? Right. That's what he says. Yeah. I was red making. I was, making, I was, I was making a joke about how it's really iconic, but I, I can remember the things. Sorry. That's okay, because I fucked up your Yorkshire bet joke. What, a, what what kind of rapport have we developed over 140 episodes? I don't think this None. podcast will be seen as <laughs> iconic as the movie Science of the Lambs, unfortunately. Not at this rate. But we've got 20 minutes or so to rescue it. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ass-clenchingly poor? Out of Danny for the judgment, we're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. Oh, let me talk about Felmer. It is directed by uh, Joachim Trier. He's a Norwegian director, previously made uh, Louder Than Bombs, which was his first English language film. But he's returned to his native country for a Norwegian film, which he's written with his regular collaborator Eskil Vort. I have the official synopsis here. Thelma, a shy young student, has just left her religious family in a small town on the west coast of Norway to study at university in Oslo. While at the library one day, she experienced a violent, unexpected seizure. 
Soon after, she finds herself intensely drawn towards Anya, a beautiful young student who reciprocates Thelma's powerful attraction. As the semester continues, Thelma becomes increasingly overwhelmed by intense feelings for Anya, feelings she doesn't dare acknowledge even to herself, while at the same time experience even more extreme seizures. As it becomes clearer that the seizures are a symptom of inexplicable, often dangerous supernatural abilities, Thelma is confronted with tragic secrets of her past and the terrifying implications of her powers. I would play a clip, but it's all in Norwegian. And none of our listeners listen to None of our listeners know Norwegian, or do they? Who am I to? Maybe they will speak Norwegian. I'm not going to play it because I can't understand it. And I can't, you know. And, and I can't read. And I can't read the subtitles. I refuse to. So I kind of half enjoyed this film, half didn't. I think it's a film, there's a twist in the film, which isn't uh, particularly successful. And uh, from that point on, it started to lose me. But at the beginning, it is quite similar to Raw, that film I... Uh, you fainted in. I fainted in. It was so good. It was, the power of cinema was so intense. That is a great movie. Uh, in that it's a sort of coming-of-age story which uses genre elements to tell that. And the movie is definitely the strongest in its opening stretch where she first goes to uni and there's this kind of nice synergy of the audience trying to work out who Thelma is because the whole movie is a character study. At the same time, the character is trying to work out who she is. And all those scenes of like going to a place where you don't know anybody and navigating that weird socially awkward time are really well done and very relatable. But then uh, these kind of supernatural elements start start occurring within the film and it kind of enters this kind of holding pattern of there'll be a weird psychic event and then she'll learn a bit about her past and so on and so forth in a way which feels like what started off as an interesting character uh, piece was kind of jettisoned for a more broadly genre movie and it feels like the movie was trying to do something but I'm not sure what it was doing and whatever it was doing didn't work, Trier. The movie can be read in a lot of different ways and one way is the sort of woman taking charge of her sexuality and the sort of latent psychic powers are like a metaphor for repressed sexual desires um, which you will learn to embrace about the film. Sounds but, quite raw-like. Yeah, but unlike raw, I think it's a film where it doesn't work unless you bring the subtext. And like, whereas raw is like, you can just ignore all the obvious thematic journey of the characters and just enjoy like a sort of rollicking horror movie. Thelma is like quite dull unless you're kind of plugged into the underlying metaphor of everything that's going on. Right, right, right. In a way which doesn't really... There's not enough going on to make that worthwhile. I would say the main actress, Ellie Harbo, is good. And it's definitely a case of a uh, director. I think he must be in love with this actress because a lot of the movies, uh, a lot of the screen time is just close-ups of her staring at stuff. It's a very sort of Ryan Gosling, an auteur movie style performance where it's like, you are beautiful and enigmatic. I shall put a camera on you and this will be entertaining. And it's sort of true (laughs) for the most part. (laughs) But... uh, she hasn't really given a lot to do, and for a character piece, it, she has very little agency, and she's kind of passive for the most of the movie until right at the very end. Uh, and it does the ending; it does kind of liven up a bit, but it's a bit like I've already checked out. Chere, I'm sorry. Too late. The, your previous hour of your movie wasn't that interesting. And when I was thinking about the movie, like a lot of the reviews I was reading was talking about him and like his body of work, which I'm not familiar with, and how this was a bit of a departure of like you know it's an art house director making a B-movie, which is always quite a snobbish and inaccurate thing to say, and something I'm guilty of, because there are plenty of art house movies that say nothing 
and there are plenty of B movies that are you know very profound. But when uh, you watch a genre movie where the visual style is different from the way that a genre is usually depicted, it does uh, feel like kind of a letdown when the most predictable thing happens. And it's like you know, don't sit me down in a restaurant and give me a takeout. I mean, I like takeout, but I was promised something else, and that's kind of how the movie feels. Like yeah. at the end of the day, it's just a genre film. It's like what was with all the long, starry sequences and they put on just... airs and graces. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like it's an okay film, but it's ultimately a little bit disappointing because the opening promised a lot more than it delivered. Yeah, yeah. So I would uh, just rewatch Raw. Go, go back. Fate hey, again. Yeah. Genesis are actually, uh, the excellent Genesis cinema are actually showing Raw in a couple of weeks. Are they? I could go see that five minutes I missed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's one of my favorite movies of recent times. So. Though I don't know if I'll be able to get there, you know. What if it just happens again? Oof. <laughs> well, I don't know. What could you do to um, gird your loins before going in? Get one of those, like, Clockwork Orange-style eye things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, like, lamp me into a chair. Yeah, just pop them in for about five minutes. Like, <laughs> the toothpick between your upper and lower eyelids. Yeah. So, Thelma. Meh. Thelma. 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 Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on. The guys are in. So let the chat begin Start talking now The Killing of a Sacred Deer This is the new movie by Yorgos Lanthimos Who most recently made The Lobster And also directed the movie Dog Tooth in 2009 This movie reunites him with uh, Colin Farrell For another sort of offbeat weird story of stilted people In some kind of heightened reality And this time he's joined by Nicole Kidman and um barry do you know how to pronounce keegan. his name is it just keegan yeah okay barry keegan who uh you might recognize as the little kid on the boat in dunkirk and he's playing a very different type of child this time one is not so innocent maybe colin farrell plays a, a cardiologist he's a heart surgeon and uh he's got a lovely uh wife and family nicole kidman's his wife and he's got a sort of big house and stuff but he is occasionally meeting up with this boy martin played by barry keegan who uh, is a the son of an ex-patient of his, and they have a slightly weird um, semi-paternal you know, uh, child relationship, um, and you're not quite sure what's going on. It's a bit creepy, um, and I don't really want to give too much away, but it goes to some uh, pretty dark places. Um, at a certain point, the movie gets a bit supernatural and odd. Here is a scene of uh, Barry Keegan, who gets increasingly invasive um, in his relationship with Colin Farrell, turns up at the hospital, and he wants to have a look at the hair on Farrell's body. What a weird, what a weird thing to want. Not sure, Holly Willoughby. Am I right? <laughs> Call back. If I had hair on my chest and belly, how would you attach these? We'd shave the hair off first. How long does it take for the hair to grow back? I don't know. About a month, I suppose. Your son told me that you've got lots of hair under your arms, three times more than I do. And that you've got a very hairy back and a very hairy belly. I probably do have a little more hair than you do because I'm older than you. But soon you'll have more hair too. It's all down to hormones. Can you show me, please? Can you take off your shirt and show me, please? Please. 
Okay, you do have more hair than I do, but not three times more. Me and my mom thought it'd be nice if you came by for dinner tonight. So, um, I uh, enjoyed the lobster, and I definitely could understand some of the uh, criticisms people have with it. Like, it wasn't a perfect move by any means. Um, but I kind of enjoyed it, so I was quite curious to see what Lanthimos was going to do next, particularly with Art House Dill Farrell. And I don't think I liked this one as much. Uh, I went to see it by myself earlier in the week. And you poor little, you poor. Well, yeah, it was a bit of an endurance test, you know. And I think that the, basically the issue with it is that um, it's a very well-made and very well-acted film. And he's obviously got a very clear vision for what he wants to make. Um, and it has been executed presumably exactly how he desired. And you feel this sort of strong artistic control over it. But the sensibility behind the movie is rather nasty. Uh, it's like unpleasant and misanthropic in a way that is also present in The Lobster, but in that movie it's kind of leavened with kind of dark rom-com elements um, and a bit of, like, uh, comedy of manners stuff. And those elements are sort of present in this film, but they're very much dampened down, and the nastiness is very much rampant up. Uh, and I I found, but by the end, I was like, I'm just not enjoying this film. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, there's... Every other scene has got some new brutal element. It kind of moves from like social awkwardness to like horrific violence. Uh, and by the end, when the credits roll, you, I wasn't sure why I had endured it. I don't know what I was getting out of it. Basically, um, it's highly misanthropic, and it doesn't seem to have any message beyond uh, just a general kind of sneer at people. And I feel like when I go to the movies. You know, the thing that I enjoy about films and stories is people, you know, and like, people's inner lives and interesting humans. And this film doesn't really have that much interest in people. It's just got this, like, uh, detached view that looks at them from the outside and is like, what a bunch of weird, sad, selfish, cowardly losers. Let's torture them. I feel like that's the attitude that the film comes from. Yeah, I mean, not to go like, not this become like a four Yorkshireman sketch, but I also saw the film alone and I watched it <laughs> at nine in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so who really had the worst experience watching Killing with Sacred Deer? Um, yeah, I think uh, the comparison I would make is to something like Mother. Which yeah, I definitely, is, it reminded me of that. Definitely. Um, they're both allegorical tales, and um, The Killing of Sacred Deer is based on a sort of Greek myth about King Agamemnon, which I can't tell you about because it'd spoil the movie. Um, don't look it up. Don't look it's it based up. based on a Greek myth. But there's a connection that, like, uh, I can understand, like, the huge like, one-star reviews Mother got. I think kind of the points people are making about that kind of can be applied to this, in that there is a level of nicest to the movie that if you're not plugged into the film, it can just become very tiring. And, uh, like, I think it's a case of, like, what is it saying? Is it saying that much? And is it worth me decoding it? Was, like, what was my reaction kind of similar to yours? I mean, it is really well made. And I think the Lanthimos dialogue style, which you just heard a bit of in that clip, is almost like this extreme acting challenge. Absolutely, where yeah. It's like, which the whole cast kind of rise to in a, in a, you know, in a very impressive fashion where your character has no real discernible link to the actual world and you have to work with an emotional register of about two degrees yeah. while it, a series of horrific shit happened to you. And uh, they do a really good job of doing that. I mean, Conan Farrell, long, long may his art house deal phase continue. I was, I was splooshing all over the place. He's just great. Every I scene. love him. He's got like a huge beard in this movie. He looks exactly like Adam Buxton. 
and I was it was a bit like watching some kind of film about the like the psychological torture of Adam Buxton. You know, maybe <laughs> that's part of what I didn't like about it because he seems like such a oh, no. you know, lovable avuncular guy, and you don't want to see him go through this. I was like Buxton, you poor man. Yeah, he was uh, <laughs> poor. Poor, Buck- Bu- poor Doctor Buckles. Yeah. Um, absolutely he's on the edge Nicole Kidman is also really really good in it yeah she's having a bit of a Kinnear renaissance but her sort of I think she's very good at the sort of brittle ice queen character type and she kind of it's more effective in this movie than I think it has been in a lot of her roles and I think maybe that very restricted restrained intensity is just very beneficial for her yeah absolutely I think she's really in her element in this film Um, and I also was really really impressed by the kids these, uh, they have two children, um, young boy and girl. The girl's about 14. The kid must be about 12 or something. Um, and they are perfectly nailing the tone of the film. I guess they've probably been like very well directed and stuff, but I thought their performances were really excellent. And their performances are so good that they help, They sort of helped me get through some of the more awful parts of the film because it was like they're on board. You know, They're in this weird, yeah, detached yeah. world and they're like fully inhabiting it. Um, and they're, they're on board with it, and it kind of like made some of the nastier elements okay, but it, you know, not completely okay. It's still pretty rough. I want to talk a little bit about like this his manner, his like weird sort of stilted uh, robot speaking manner. It it does like a few things, and I think it's quite a good device in some ways because it immediately makes you like think about what the film is doing, um, and it gives the movie this rather clinical and anthropological perspective, which is the same one the lobster had. And this is to family relationships, what the lobster was to dating. And the lobster treated dating like some strange, like, thing that, you know, it's like a documentary about human behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And this movie is kind of the same thing, but about family behaviors. Um, And I think that that's an interesting approach, but that it is somewhat unsatisfying because this clinical view is also so cynical about people. And that way that they act makes them all seem, they're all sad all the time. And it makes any conversations they have seem ludicrous. Like the first scene when he's talking about buying the watch with his like doctor friend. And it's just like, you know, these people are so strange. And it's like the movie's attitude is like small talk. What a ridiculous thing. It's like the whole film is. Yeah, it feels like mocking. it's gone through like Google Translate nine times. Or yeah, something. exactly. <laughs> yeah. And like the whole movie is just sort of mocking the way people act. And it, it could be read as a skewering of upper middle class, like decadent bourgeois society. But if so, that's a bit muddled by the fact that there's no non-decadent class of people to contrast that with. Unlike in a movie... I mean, I read this piece by Richard Brody in The New Yorker where he was saying that um, Lanthimos is a kind of disciple of Michael Haneke. Um, and uh, I've only seen one Haneke film, so I immediately compared to that, uh, which is Caché. And that movie is kind of about like bourgeois middle-class people and how awful they are. But that at least does contrast with uh, working-class people who are not like that. Whereas in this film, it's like, is that just the human condition? Are they just all, you know, morons? Yeah, I think um, that's true because, like, the character of Marston is, like... He's not, he's, he's not weird. from their milieu, but he's fucking weird as hell. But it's like, how do you delineate between... When everyone sounds the same, how do you delineate? It's like, Marston's a bit weird. It's like, he sounds like everyone else yeah, yeah. in the There's film. There's a really funny bit here where Colin Farrell is, like, says that he has psychological problems. It's like, you all do, come on. Like, <laughs> there's something seriously odd going on. Um, I think it was doing something about how... Like, because their relationship in the family seems on the surface to be like a very you know they do all the behaviors of a normal loving family yeah they're a nuclear family one boy one girl one boy yeah exactly they live this kind of like perfect american dream type existence but as the movie goes on uh the things that occur unpick the relationships between them 
and anything good that they do to each other is kind of exposed as being like transactional and like very hierarchical and you know the the affection is shown up to be false basically uh, and it felt like that was the mission of the film um and i don't know like that's quite cleverly done uh but is that true i mean i don't think it's true about how people are yeah um and the attitude is just a bit of a sneer you know and i don't know if that's like what one that i appreciate so it's like a really well-made film but coming from a place that i didn't like that much basically yeah i agree i had to watch it at nine i had to watch it at nine in the morning <laughs> i haven't had my coffee yet Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat have a cup of tea maybe make a quick snack and telephone friends so you know where she's at right that's enough now back to film chat listeners thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to this episode of film chat thank you so much thank you so much we really appreciate it or as Jorgos Lampard would say thanks for listening to the podcast it's been a real pleasure doing this episode of a podcast with you have you enjoyed it I've enjoyed it do you want to go and have dinner with me after this podcast has been recorded yes I will have dinner with you what would you like to eat for dinner we could have Mexican we could have Thai we could have Italian I had Thai recently, so Mexican or Italian would work for me. That sounds delicious. All right, listen. I hope we could win fucking palm doors wherever we go. Can we? <laughs> Piece of piss. Have anyone, you guys anyone seen the King of a Sacred Deer? Or that bit would not land. We're doing it. That's an impression of how they talk in that film. Uh, next week we are going to be reviewing. Well, I will be reviewing No Stone Unturned, the new Alex Gibney documentary, which is very, very good, and Florida Projects the new film by Sean Baker, director of Tangerine. Are there going to be previews so I can see one of those movies before I we I think record? Florida Project might be previewing. Good, because I really want to see that. Yeah, it's sick. It's so good. It's one of the best films I've seen all year. And Whoa. I've seen loads of... I saw 50 films like a month ago, so... All right, get your glow sticks out. It's going to be a rave. Actually, it's, it is in many ways the perfect antidote to Can of a Sacred Deer. Right, like, really human the, Yeah, the director about. loves everybody. <laughs> it's all about humans and, you know, people are nice in it. going to be honest, man. I am so ready for this <laughs> film. So I'm going to go, go seek that out as soon as possible. All of you, enjoy your weeks. Uh, and we'll see. I'm not going to do that. I'm tired of my bit. See you next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Let's do it. We have guests. Oh, What's the matter with you? Oh, my bits are falling off. Edgerd. What the hell? Good God. Master, he's a complete knucklehead. I'm awfully sorry about that, but, um, you see, he thinks it's still the year 1918 or 1914, something like that, isn't it? I mean, it's late onset of, um, well, robot dementia. I don't talk to yeah. I don't know what you're smoking in that pipe, man. What's going on here? Will you drag me to some transformer time or something? Mm-hmm. Look, somebody better start talking. I'm out of here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. Um, Bumblebee, we only met when I was a little boy in short pants. I must have been that tall. Maybe taller. Or maybe shorter. I can't remember. But... Oh, look, wait. Oh, you? Space. You know this guy? Oh, oh, yeah. Let's have a look at this thing. Please. Very interesting. Yes. You keep a secret for so long, knowing it to be true, and yet deep down inside, begin to wonder. Has my life been wasted? 
Have you ever felt like that, Mr. K? It's just Kate. Look, old timer, I don't have a ton of patience for riddles right now. Yes, but you want to know, don't you, dude? Why they keep coming here to Earth, right? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.